Uh, welcome to this uh, LSE Spaces for Thought uh, Literary Weekend, uh, designed at once to explore the links between literature and social thought, um, and as a series of spoken peons to this new academic building in which we sit. Um, this uh, Will Self public lecture is brought to you in conjunction with the Clare Market Review, of which I am the outgoing editor. Um, Clare is the LSE SU's journal and the oldest of its kind in the country, having staggered on with questionable dignity for about 100 years now. Uh, be absolutely certain to check out its website at www.clairemarketreview.com. Uh, thanks must also go quickly to Phyllis Liu. Thanks must also go to Phyllis Liu and to the Wesley Snipes Centre for the Privatisation of Culture. Uh, if I could politely remind you to quietly affect the killing of all mobile devices, and that means absolutely off. Then, uh, without further ado, I can uh, swiftly pass over to our chair for this evening, uh, Dr. Kavita Abraham. Kavita. Thank you, Dan. Um, welcome to this very exciting, at least for me, one of the highlights of this LSE Literary Weekend. Uh, my name is Kavita Abraham, and I am an LSE Fellow but um, that has absolutely no relationship to why we are here. I am here as a fan of Will Self to enjoy with the rest of you some of his thoughts and ideas. Just a couple of points of order before we start. What the, um, the program for the day is we will try to um, have 45 minutes of Will speaking, perhaps reading a bit from his books and then talking again some more. And then I know we're all keen to get um, as much discussion going as possible. So three points for the question-answer sessions. We have mics floating around, so when you would like to ask a question, if you would wait for the mic to reach you. We're also very happy to know we have many people from outside the LSE, so if you could just briefly say who you are before you ask your question. And thirdly, as a final point, on the third day of our literary weekend, if I could just request that we keep our questions to a minimum, and in the tone of a question rather than a speech or a thesis which one might wish to share. Okay, so now it's just up to me to introduce um, our speaker for today, who is Will Self. He's an English novelist, reviewer, columnist. Um, although he studied at Oxford University, Will is not without links to the LSE. His father was a professor of political science here. And uh, he has made several TV appearances, including Have I Got News For You, Room 101, Question Time, has written eight novels and eight collections of short stories, which just leaves me to mention that at the end of the talk, there will be copies of his, two of his books, The Butt and Liver, which he's going to do some excerpts from, um, which, he will, which will be by the Waterstones desk, and you could um, get them signed by Will Self. So if you would join me in welcoming our speaker today, Will Self. Thanks very much. Um, if you could desist from flash photography, I would be grateful. My uh, soul has already been robbed by many such devices. 
it's a pernicious aspect of the modern world that uh, people seem to believe that photography is entirely acceptable at all times. It's a kind of pornography of modern living. You may blush. <laughs> I remember being in Soho. You'll all have seen this recently to people, and I can now say this with increasing confidence, to people of my generation. The spectacle of a traffic accident, or as I saw the other day, a taxi rolling across a junction and into a plate glass window because the driver had neglected to leave the handbrake off, followed by the people who were sitting in the restaurant who had had the car plunge through into their dining area, as well as people on the street forming a ring with their cameras <laughs> and photographing the incident, was frankly beyond satire. I think it was Hunter Thompson who said, reality itself has become so twisted it's impossible for a satirist to effectively operate. And I certainly thought that that was uh, true in that instance. Um, photographers often come round and they take my photograph because it's cheap for publications to have their own photographer. In journalism, we call them snappers a somewhat derogatory term. So a snapper will come round, take your photograph, and then say, would you offer to show it to you? And I always say, I know what I look like. Because I do. I see myself in the mirror every day. Um, it's true. My father was a professor here. And it's always interesting for me coming to Lincoln's Inn, getting off at Holborn, walking down here, and remembering that I grew up in the Hampstead Garden suburb in North London, and one of my earliest memories of the LSE is not really a memory of the LSE. It's a memory of a kind of psychic perception of the LSE, because during the riots in 68, my father, who had his office was in the chambers just around the corner from here, about 150 yards from where we're now sitting, uh, called up my mother to say that he wouldn't be able to make it home because the porter had, been, had a heart attack during the riot and died outside his offices. So this obviously, I think it was the only death during the événement in London. And... Uh, Obviously, enormous hysteria ensued, and I remember as a seven-year-old child having a kind of weird mental picture of what must be going on at the LSE during this riot. You can imagine what it was like for a seven-year-old child to have these events being relayed by phone calls. And then we would come to the LSE fairly often and go up to the senior common room, which I remember being on the the top floor, and that was, believe it or not, was incredibly exotic for a child you know, coming into the LSE. But the most exotic thing of all was that in the old student union building, and maybe some people here can remember this, if you can, please see me afterwards so that we can pleasurably reminisce about this astonishing thing. There was a lift in the old student union building here you're nodding your head. You know what I'm going to say. 
that was a continuous band that went round and round and round so that a car of the lift would come level with the floor and you'd jump on and then when you got to the floor you wanted to get off at, you'd jump off and if you were a child or maybe if you were a you know, professor of sociology <laughs> perhaps especially if you were a professor of sociology needing to leaven your subject matter somewhat you would go over the top or under the bottom. Imagine such a thing nowadays. Unthinkable. The danger represented by this <laughs> lift without doors operating continually. You can imagine that it would produce apoplexy in a health and safety executive member. So probably more dangerous and, and more, if you'll forgive the pun, revolutionary than any of the student disturbances that have ever graced the LSE. Um, I'm going to read a couple of passages to you this morning from this book, Liver. Uh, it was a kind of anis, either mirabilis or horribilis, depending on your perspective for me, last year, and I published two books. In fact, published three books within the year, but one of them was a collection of journalism. This book, Liver, um, is a sort of story cycle. It's a collection of three long short stories and a novella, all of them, as the title suggests, themed around the human liver. And really, the odd thing is that I think one returns, you know, there are writers who are writers of place, I think, who are concerned with place very fundamentally and where things happen and I'm one of them, and there are writers who really aren't too bothered about place, so, um, who will write a book. I think it's a paramount example of the latter is perhaps the late John Updike, who years ago was in Brazil uh, at, a, at the Sao Paulo Biennale, and John Updike had just been there, and he'd been in Brazil for a week, and then written a novel called Brazil, about Brazil <laughs> and naturally the Brazilians were rather pissed off by this and felt that there was a certain uh, arrogance in a carpetbagger writing an entire novel off the back of spending a week in their country it's actually not that bad a book but then I'm not Brazilian so what do I know um, which is all by way of saying that the section I'm going to read you of, of this story Froid Humane the principal action takes place round the corner from here, again. So we're right in the, the cockpit of, of memory and fictional creation for me, this very precise place. And Fuachumain is a long short story, really a short novella, set in a, in a private members drinking club largely called the Plantation Club which is based on a club in Soho known as the Colony Room called the Colony Room Club which was founded in the 1940s by a woman called Muriel Belcher great name great name 
And uh, back in the day, and, and really up until the liberalisation of licensing laws that occurred in various staggered ways but didn't come to its full fruition until the Blair regime, you would have a private members drinking club would exist for people who wanted to drink when the pubs shut at 2.30 in the afternoon between then and when they reopened at 5.30. So it was a very, very specific clientele that would use an establishment of this kind where you had to pay a membership fee and then were allowed to purchase liquor. They were called, and still are, alcoholics. <laughs> I think the interesting thing about the Colony Room Club, which is still staggering on in, in Dean Street, was it was an establishment that was born out of the kind of wartime Fitzrovian literary and artistic scene in Soho. And it, it was in many ways a kind of time capsule. It's perhaps its most famous member was Francis Bacon, the painter, but you know, you could see Lucien Freud in there, you could see Dan Farson, Jeffrey Bernard, the columnist, these kinds of people. And it was a kind of time capsule, I, I now think, of the society that we now inhabit. In other words, the prevailing style in the colony room, whether you went in there in the late 1940s or as I did for the first time in the late 1970s, was a kind of high camp, uh, overtly gay, uh, uh, mannered style. Uh, people spoke peppering their language with obscenities. In fact, I wouldn't even say that they were peppering them with obscenities. Obscenities were the main cause. Uh, you know, the, one of the things that first struck me as a teenager going in there was that the use of the word cunt was not just in its nounal or verbal forms or adjectival forms, but it was actually also used as a conjunction, uh, a preposition, a pronoun. Um, in fact, the only personal pronoun ever employed, to my knowledge, in the colony room was she. There were no he's, only she's. Uh, and as I say, I first went in there in the 19, late 1970s. Now, by then, in retrospect, the kind of prevailing mores of the colony room were a fulcrum around which the outer world was changing. When the club had been initiated, it was before the writing of the Wolfenden Report before the Wolfenden Report had come into law so overt homosexuality was effectively illegal uh, afternoon drinking was you know, illegal unless you went to a private members club the prevailing public discourse was not one of, of constant obscenity where do we find ourselves in 2009? While well, things inside the colony room got sadder and sadder, the street outside became gayer and gayer. And you find yourselves in 2009 with able to buy a drink at any time of the day or night, with homosexuality being legal and obscenity being the principal form of public discourse. So you could say that... that 
again coming back to our theme this morning of social revolution, if you like, that unlike the Benmore at the LSE, the colony room and its membership were the real revolutionary cell that they carried forward the social revolution that's gripped the wider society. So I'd like to read you a section from Foix Humaine, which of course those of you who are either gastronomes or francophiles will realize it means human liver. Uh, and uh, the principal character is uh, a man called Val Carmichael who's based on the man who took over the colony room from Muriel Belcher and uh, he is involved in perpetrating a form of gavage which is the process by which poultry farmers in the Dordogne stuff geese with grain until their livers explode and are turned into foie gras. So he's perpetrating this on his barman, but rather than using grain, he's using grain spirit to wit vodka, which he is slowly softening up the liver of his barman, who's a character called Hillary. As will become apparent, all of the denizens of the plantation club in the story have nicknames of various kinds, and they are a louche crowd. And in this scene, the membership of the club are going to see a production of Endgame at the Peacock Theatre, which involves one of their number in the... Uh, in one of the lead roles to where a man called Neil Bolton, who's also known as the Extra. So that's enough of an introduction. Here goes. Foix Kumain. Hillary locked the till. Val pocketed the key. Hillary checked the toilet to see that no one had collapsed in it. A common occurrence with members' guests who, invited in for a singular drink, found themselves indoctrinated by a cult of libations. Val finished his V&T. The members slopped down the stairs into Bloor Court, sniffing the astringent bouquet of the early evening piss left there by the dossers. Hillary switched off the lights and locked the door of the plantation. Val pocketed the key. Crossing Wardour Street, then rounding the corner by the vintage house and proceeding up Old Compton Street, the plantation members who appeared in public en bloc, perhaps only once or twice a decade, presented a curious spectacle. Overgrown children, their clothes a lustrum or two out of date, holding hands to form a crocodile that swam upstream against the current of fluvial time. Out in front was the dog, sniffing the route ahead, then darting back if an overweight Scots drunk can ever be said to dart anywhere 
unless, that is, he's actually playing darts to round up the others. Val and Hillary had linked arms, but out of desperation, not defiance. Val had a spotted silk scarf knotted around his scraggy throat. Dark glasses pinched his ruby nose with its bloody filigree. In his free hand, a walking stick wavered over the paving. He looked like a sick old man. He was 46. Alcohol had done aging's business, psychically as well as physically. Val was so long accustomed to the third tranquility of the plantation that rush hour London had a furious insect intensity for him as he proceeded among them, the pedestrians buzzed and flitted, settling in the food-spattered roadway, then taking flight when a lumbering lorry tried to crush them. Up to Cambridge Circus, then dazedly across and onto the Seven Dials, Hillary staggered over the cobbles of Neal Street. He needed Val's support almost as much as vice versa. The slim hips that Val had once impotently coveted were now pulpy. Beneath his Breton fisherman's jersey, Hillary's liver was swelling as fatty globules accumulated in its cells. Already the macrovesicular steatosis was underway. And to confirm still further that Hillary warranted the feminine personal pronoun, a spongy mass was building up in concentric rings around his nipples, a foretaste for the paps that ne'er gave suck of alcohol-induced gynecomastia. Val's clawed hand, its nails striped with the paired bands of hypoalbuminemia, dug into the soft underside of Hillary's wing. He guided his fattened goose past the ugly pile of the Freemasons' Hall on Great Queen Street, possibly the preeminent club among the many who would never have accepted these members as members. Her ladyship was flagging on the long march while the typist collapsed hopelessly on the lip of a concrete cup, spiky with greenery. A passerby, confused by her two pieces of tweed and general air of respectability, leant down to inquire if she was all right then recoiled from her gin breath and hurried on. The stony canyon of Kingsway terrified the members. They hugged the ankles of the buildings, keening for mercy. They almost scampered into Lincoln Inn Fields and made their escape via the old curiosity shop into Portugal Street. They didn't properly regain their breath until cigarettes lit, they were ensconced in the theatre bar and the Martian had bought them all a drink, a triple for Val, who was most in need. Why? Why the fuck? Val panted. Did we fucking walk here? <laughs> but of course, none of them knew. 
The crowd in the bar were not the usual sort of first-nighters. These sports-jacketed men with British home-stored bolsters of wives had driven in from the outer burbs or even further afield, some with teenage children, others with elvers still more jellied, no more familiar with Beckett than Val Carmichael, less so in point of fact because he had once met the playwright with Truget, the painter. What's he like? the extra had asked. Her, Val replied. Total cunt! <laughs> These punters had come to see Terry Pierce, the fresh-faced and rubber-legged star of the hugely popular peak-time sitcom Baloo's Den, in which he played an accident-prone young scoutmaster. Backstage, Pierce had been appalled by the state that Bolton had arrived in. The extra caromed off the distempered walls and nutted the safety lights wire basketry. However, after applying to an attentive stagehand for medicinal cocaine, the actor, who was to be the very embodiment of Beckett's joyful pessimism, did indeed achieve a kind of joyful pessimism. Terry, darling, he slurred, propped in the doorway of his co-star's dressing room. Don't worry about nothing, sweetie. All I gotta fucking do is sit there, babes, is you gotta do the work. This, while technically accurate, was still not particularly reassuring for Pierce, who, in common with so many farceurs, had a deep, almost pathological yearning to be taken seriously. The extra, as ham, might well be able to sit in an armchair on casters for 90-some minutes, but whether he could bring the right kind of sonorous asperity to lines widely regarded as the very acme of bleak absurdism seemed altogether doubtful. He couldn't even remember the names of the actors playing Nell and Nag, who fluttered about solicitously in their grey weeds, faces doubly whitened, merely waving them away with an idle, Will you fuck off, you little cunts? Bare interior, grey light, left and right back, high up, two small windows, curtains drawn. The Spartan set and insufficient lighting mandated by Beckett's anal retentive stage directions may have temporarily dampened the audience's spirits. They were, after all, anticipating an evening rich with belly laughs. But the entrance of their hero and his funambulist compliance to those self-same directions soon ignited outbreaks of giggling, especially among the teenagers. Goes and stands under window left, stiff, staggering walk. He turns and looks at window right. He goes and stands under window right. He looks up at window right. He turns and looks at window left. He goes out, comes back immediately with a small stepladder. 
With each wobbly revolution and spring-heeled gyration, Terry Pierce called forth gales of laughter. Then, when he eventually closed in on the shapeless form center stage and whipped away the sheet shrouding it to reveal Bolton in a dressing gown, stiff tock on his head, blood-stained handkerchief covering his features, the merriment faltered. In the wings, the director of the piece was on his knees, a prayer on his lips, albeit a secular one, an adaptation to suit these harrowing circumstances of the playwright's own apesu concerning Ham, that he was the kind of man who likes things coming to an end, but doesn't want them to end just yet. Midway back in the stalls, strung out along the best seats in the house, sat the membership of the plantation. They had already attracted whispery opprobrium in the bar as they sucked up booze, spurted out smoke, and cratered the haze with their cunts. Now, in the blacked-out auditorium, their purse-lipped critics discovered that the plantation members not only looked off, they smelt it too. Very red face, black glasses. Handkerchief removed, a reversal began the very instant the extra spoke Ham's first line. Me, he yawns, to play. The extra hadn't needed much makeup at all to conform with Beckett's instruction that Ham have a very red face. And while he may have been drunk, he was still an old trooper. He remembered his lines and gave them a slushy, sibilant delivery that sent out small puffs of spume clearly visible in the footlights. Bolton's fellow members, who, while possessing little culture themselves, nonetheless knew perfectly well how to be snobbish about it, were appalled by the levity with which their country cousins were responding to the crepuscular vision of the great dramatist. They tut-tutted, and the poof even poked the eleven-year-old boy sitting next to him and hissed, Shut up, you little prick! But then the hicks became transfixed by the extra's ham. He may have remained seated, but his performance was definitely a high-wire act. The unutterable pathos of the human condition as revealed by the desperate, halting exchanges between Bolton Ham and Pierce, Clove, fell heavily on them, a mighty weight crushing their bourgeois complacency. The mums and dads ceased chuckling, the teenagers stopped tittering, the smaller kids struggled on with their giggles for a few more minutes, but soon, flummoxed by the weirdness of it all, they too shut up and lapsed into that state of shocked boredom that Theodore Adorno characterized Vide Endgame as the gerontocracy of late capitalism. However, very red face, black 
glasses. Ham calling upon the dogged, hapless, slavish clod to poison himself. Ham static and less wheeled, self-obsessed and less rebarbative. Nell and Nag in their bins, the whitened after-images of human affection, condemned forever to an atemporal realm in which they acted out and acted out and acted out the pathetic dependency they called love. Very red face, black glasses. It didn't need Ken Tynan, the only individual who had known both mise-en-scene intimately, to recognize that this setup was uncannily like the daily psychodrama in the plantation club, nor to grasp that Ham, as portrayed by the extra, bore close comparison with Val Carmichael himself. By the time Bolton reached the line, Do you not think this has gone on long enough? And worse, delivered it with an accurate imitation of Val's whining croak, the overseer of the plantation could bear it no longer and whined back, It certainly has, you cunt! The extra was too much of a pro to react to this, but Terry Pierce fumbled, then dropped the three-legged toy dog. Having got this off his sunken chest, Val had no intention of leaving. Besides, he had wittingly planted an evil seed, and in the last half hour of the play was delighted by its burgeoning, as, unable to control himself, Bolton began to gash Ham's gnomic utterances with more and more cunts. Now it was the members' turn to be convulsed, while the small-town burghers sat, possibly as Beckett had intended, desperate for it all to end right away. <laughs> By the time the extra glossed Ham's final weary remark thus, Speak no more! Old cunt, you remain. They were shuddering with embarrassment, whereas Val was clucking with delight. Backstage, the director lay unconscious <laughs> in a pool of his own tears. The critic from Time Out declared Bolton's ham to be a masterful improvisatory tour de force, restoring a much-needed contemporary bite to a piece that was beginning to petrify in the gorgon stare of academic eyes. Others were not so sure, and although Endgame smouldered on at the Peacock Theatre for another 16 performances, with most of Bolton's expletives deleted, it was soon enough stubbed out by lawyers acting on behalf of its author, who, whether or not he may have been a total cunt, totally objected to any bowdlerization of his work. Thank you. So that's the Peacock Theatre around the corner from here. And now we can get out of London, which is always a relief, frankly. Um, William Burroughs says, 
London drags on me like a sea anchor. And I know what it means sometimes when nobody meant. Um, the main piece in this book is called Labour Knödel, which is Schweizerdeutsch, uh, Swiss German for liver dumpling. And uh, it's a story about uh, a woman called Joyce Beddoes. Uh, she's a retired NHS administrator in her early 70s. She's a widow, her husband Derry having died a few years previously. And she has contracted cancer of the liver. She has one daughter, Isabel, who's in her 30s and who spends rather too much time in the plantation club. And Joyce <coughs> feels she can't rely on her daughter. It's a troubled relationship. The daughter may or may not be an alcoholic. And given a lifetime of seeing how the NHS operates and how doctors operate, Joyce is skeptical about the possibility of having a good death in Birmingham and decides to go to Zurich uh, to be euthanized. And, um, I mean, we can talk about this if you're inclined later on, but I was very, obviously, assisted suicide has been an issue that has been very much on the agenda for quite a while and it seemed to me that it was really one of the most significant moral and ethical issues that our society confronted and I was very surprised that nobody to my knowledge had really dealt with it in fiction so I was interested to try and approach it as a fiction writer because I think that that's a, a way of sometimes uh, finding out more about something so, we're going to pick Joyce and her daughter up. They're staying in a hotel called the Vida in Zurich. And uh, this is the morning that is appointed for Joyce's suicide. <coughs> Leberknödel. In the morning, the fog was still there. Daylight struggled to illumine the stony facades and blank windows. As she woke, Joyce recalled what the minicab driver who'd driven them to the airport had said. The A45 was its usual coagulation, and he kept switching lanes, speeding up, then braking so hard that Joyce's bloated middle pressed uncomfortably against the door handle. Please, she gasped. Please, really, there's no hurry. We're in plenty of time. It's true, he replied. The fight went out of him and he slumped over the steering wheel. You're a long time dead. Isabel winced, while Joyce thought... 
Why is it that even those closest to me regard my dying as socially awkward? Rising in slow stages, Joyce ran through the checklist that confirmed she was unfit for duty. The banging headache and the wire in her urethra, the painful numbness of fingers and toes, the cruel blockage in her esophagus, and the malevolent gravity of her internal organs. She limped to the bathroom and pulled the cord. The woman in the mirror, with her sparse skullcap of grey-white hair, looked like death's mother. Not long after she had been diagnosed, while she was undergoing the useless chemo and radio, Joyce had begun marvelling at this aspect of her illness. All her life, she had been engaged in a secret conversation with her body, whispered talk concerning the removal of her mucus, the blotting of her blood, and the evacuation of her bowels, consultations regarding the squeezing of her blackheads and the plucking of her hairs. In this, Joyce supposed, she was no different to anyone else. But now, this chit-chat had been shouted down, Joyce's body had revolted. The respectable working-class liver cells had gone berserk, smashing the chemical refinery they laboured in, then charging down the bloody boulevards to carry their fervour to gallbladder, bowel and lungs. They would not stop until they had toppled the sovereignty of consciousness itself and replaced it with their own screaming masses of cancerous tissue. Peeing, then wiping herself, then fighting to brush her teeth, Joyce reeled once more under the revolutionary terror and so remembered what day this was <coughs> and why she was in her familiar purple nighty shaking in this strange yellow bathroom. The imminence of her death and the fact that she herself had booked the abattoir polaxed the poor cow. So she sat, stupidly sullen, while her milkmaid daughter helped dress her for the slaughter. Isabel, who had barely slept despite four massively overpriced gin and tonics in the hotel bar, was equally stunned. Ridiculously, they were late, and the continental breakfast she had ordered for them lay untouched on white linen-covered trays. Mum, I've asked them to get us a cab, she said. It should be here in a few minutes. I'm sorry there's no time. She gestured helplessly at the croissants, the furled emmental and smoked ham, the freshly squeezed orange juice. Joyce ignored the breakfast gap. Still, how many times have I told her that I mustn't eat before? Well, dear, you'll need to make up some time later if you want to pack and check out in time to avoid paying a supplement. Her parsimony, Joyce knew, was inhuman and yet all too human. Isabel had begun to sob uncontrollably. But we've been over all this time and again. 
just as Joyce had forced her daughter through several tutorials in the study so that she would be able to find all the papers required for probate, so Joyce had also rehearsed these last few hours and minutes, blocking out every move with precision and care, all but scripting lines for both of them. Joyce understood intuitively what every executioner soon discovered. Perfect choreography is essential if messiness and hysteria are to be avoided. So, although hustled towards extinction by her daughter's poor timekeeping, Joyce was determined to keep her cool. For the facts were these. Apart from Isabel's preschool years, the early 1970s, a good time to take a rest on the career ladder, Joyce had spent her entire working life as a hospital administrator. She had ended up running a large trust, responsible for many staff and patients. She had, she hoped, brought all this professionalism to bear on her own death. Joyce struggled upright. She was wearing her comfortably lined ankle boots, a smart tweed suit, dark tights and a cream silk blouse. The emerald brooch Derry had given her on their 20th wedding anniversary was pinned to her lapel. She hadn't troubled with an incontinence pad. There's nothing left now. Her mouth was fearfully dry. They had said no liquids or solids before arriving at 84 Gertrudstrasse, but that can't possibly include polos, can it? <laughs> Joyce fingered out one of the small white rings and slid it between her chapped lips. Then, as they moved to the lift, she worked it with her tongue, savoring the dissolution of its minty wash. Around her was the lift clunk and then the lobby chill. The vidder staff who opened the doors knew. They know. At each encounter there was a familiar grüzi or a haughty guten tag. Then Isabel and the doorman were in hushed consultation regarding their destination. To live with dignity, to die with dignity. That was their motto. What Joyce had appreciated most during her dealings with the executioners she had appointed was their commitment to best practice. All communications had been brief and to the point. She had made the 3,500 euro deposit weeks before. The doctor's prescription for 25 grams of natrium phenobarbital, together with his attendance and that of the suicide assistants, had been brusquely and competently organized. Joyce chided herself. For had she not loved and been loved? Had she not run, swum, and smelt? She might not have had all that she'd wanted, but there had been all that she'd needed. But then there was Isabel, unmade up, her handbag a gaping straw basket in which the disorder of her life, multiple packets of chewing gum, cigarettes and nicotine lozenges, loose change, dumb trinkets, was on view for all to see. 
as the Mercedes tumbrel rolled over the cobbles of the Rennweg, then jolted into Seelstrasse. Joyce marveled at her own cold detachment. Isabel and all her disordered passions, her drinking and no doubt her drug-taking, her queer boyfriends and unpaid debts, was an administrative problem that Joyce had been unable to shift to her out-tray before she died. <laughs> Isabel, who was crying again, although her mother, meanly, felt certain it was self-pity alone, remained pending. Joyce had so little faith in her that she had decided to do without a funeral. No matter how careful her instructions, Isabel would be bound to muck it up. The fog lay low over the city so that the tram cables underscored its obscure notation. Joyce had read in the tourist guide that the Zurichers enjoyed the best quality of life in the world. They didn't look as if they were enjoying it much this morning. These black-clad revenants hurrying through the grey. Nevertheless, the cleanliness of the streets, the orderliness of the populace, the efficiency of the infrastructure. You are never more than a hundred meters from the nearest bus, tram, or train stop were there for all to see. It was utterly unlike the splurge of Birmingham, a city, Joyce thought, that no matter how much it primped itself up, always looked like it had got out of civilization's bed on the wrong side and was shambling across Middle England, kicking housing estates and retail parks out of its roadway. Put simply, Joyce hadn't wanted to live anymore with this metastasized town any more than she'd wanted to suffer the torment and indignity of her cancer. But if she had continued with this dispassionate order, well, maybe. However, such speculations were massively beside the point, far too late, because they had turned into Gertrudstrasse, a street of forgettable five-story apartment blocks, and the cab was now halting in front of the dullest, a pedestrian exercise in the ruling of straight lines, which wouldn't have looked out of place in the bullring. At every step of the procedure, it is how you say um, best practice as well as our legal responsibility to remind you of exactly what you are doing. Do you understand? Yes. This liquid is an antiemetic. It is necessary for you to drink all of it, yes, and also to eat as many of the chocolates as you can. Otherwise, you may, how you say, vomit? Exactly so. Vomit the phenobarbital. Unfortunately, with this particular drug, you must take a lot, yes? Dr. Hull's accent was slight and his English of good cloth stretched over German syntax. He appeared unremarkable, the kind of vaguely rotund man in his late fifties, his brownish-gray hair shaded in above his neat ears, his charcoal-gray suit jacket pushed apart by his paunch, 
that could be encountered in any side office anywhere in the developed world. His medicalization was affected by gold-rimmed bifocals and a small gold caduceus lapel badge. But this wasn't an office. It was a one-bedroom flat on the fourth floor of a Zurich apartment block, and while everything had been done to make it seem, if not lived in, at any rate livable, the air-freshened atmosphere remained determinedly commercial. It was, Joyce thought, the workplace of an osteopath, a new age healer, or perhaps, although she had never seen such a thing, the better kind of prostitute. The walls were papered pale yellow, the curtains were blue chiffon. Through an open door, she could see a small bedroom, an alpine landscape hung over the bed, which was single, with a thick mattress and a green coverlet. The three of them were sitting at a round table, upon which stood a fresh candle, a garland of dried flowers at its base. The legal papers were spread out on the blue and white check tablecloth. Beside the official registration of her birth sat a camcorder, inside of which a tiny Joyce, trapped for all eternity, was saying, I wish it to be known that my death has been entirely voluntary and that I was subject to no pressure or duress by anyone. True und glauben. That, she knew, was the Swiss's conception of themselves. Every contract was entered into with full faith and the required credit. To go over the small print was to impugn the other party's character. Anyway, she had read the papers already. There were copies posted on the organization's website, so she had signed them all, all except her will, which she had brought from England herself. So, Dr. Hull said, fetching a silvery cardboard box from a wall-mounted cupboard, you will have a chocolate, yes? They were pimply truffles bedded in tissue paper, Joyce thought back to the Vida Hotel and the complimentary chocolates on the coffee table in her room. They had also been truffles, but white ones caught in a cage of spun sugar. Very stylish. She and Derry had lived in Bourneville for almost 30 years. Then, after his death three years ago, she was left alone in the idealized home. On days when the wind was in the east, the smell from the chocolate factory fell across the privet hedges and the lawns that had been mown into stripes. Everything was sweet, sweet, incredibly sweet. The absolute horror of suicide gripped Joyce like a palsy, its mundanity and its profundity. The bulk of life, she now understood, was a succession of erasures, one action cancelling out the last. Not now. Everything that she was doing had a machined finality. If only, if life could have been like this, such intensity, 
and now to die with people not much liked, let alone loved. She took one of the truffles and placed it in her mouth. It began to dissolve immediately. As if a spell had been broken, Dr. Hull went back to the cupboard, got out a plastic canister, opened it and began spooning the contents into a glass while counting out in an undertone, ein, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, all the way to fünfzehn, when he was somehow back at the table, seated and looking at Joyce with his gold-rimmed green eyes. Dr. Hull put the glass full of poison down beside the papers and said, Now, the antiemetic, yes? It tasted vile. At once ferrous and organic, Joyce almost brought up the stuff meant to stop her retching. This was why the chocolates were needed to fill her mouth with sweetness so the bitterness wouldn't overwhelm her. And now, another chocolate, yes? Joyce couldn't fault Dr. Hull's manner. He was devoid of any inappropriate levity, yet not solemn, deeply concerned and altogether present, while by no means intimate. He had managed to weld all three of them into a highly effective team within minutes of their entering the flat. The evidence of this was that Joyce wanted to please him, so took another truffle, although she didn't feel like it. Only Isabel, Joyce felt, was letting the side down. Her daughter sat sideways on the straight-backed chair, her shoulders rounded in powder-blue cashmere, Joyce's own, and shaking. She had a wad of Kleenex pressed to her eye, while a second sent out soggy tendrils from where it was lodged in the sleeve of her cardigan. Isabel, who had hardly spoken to Dr. Hull, was being barely polite. Her hair, Joyce noted, was a mess. Medusa snakes of various blonde hues, and it was far too long for a woman of her age. Joyce washed down the chocolate sludge with a second gulp of the bitter antiemetic. Do please to remember, Dr. Hall said, that at any of these times, Mrs. Beddoes, you are able to make the mind change, yes? He had said this at least three times before, and on each occasion Joyce had replied, I understand. It was, she grasped, the very call and a response of assisted suicide. Dr. Hull was the priest announcing the credo, and she was the congregation of one that affirmed it. Then, suddenly, the antiemetic was all gone, and there were only three truffles left in the box. Joyce couldn't recall this eating and drinking, but the pads of her fingers were sticky and her lips were tacky. Dr. Hull poured water into the glass, heaped with phenobarbital, then stirred it. Ding, 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 ding. It would have been better, Joyce thought, to have brought Miriam or even Sandra, anyone in fact other than Isabel, who simply can't cope. Perhaps 
Dr. Hole ventured, you would be finding yourself more comfortable in the bedroom. No, thank you, Joyce said. I'd as soon stay here for the meanwhile. In that case, he held up the cloudy glass. I must tell you that if you drink this, you will die. Thank you. since I, I read up on it, but I do recall that, that, that I think some of the circumstantial facts are definitely right, yes. Yes. I think there's somebody halfway down there. With, there you go. Hello, I'm Roy Bougie, I'm an alumna. Um, I wonder if you have a view on what seems to be a kind of a polarisation of um, the dying experience, where on one hand, or in some cultures, it's quite a taboo and unspoken subject um, and shied away from and in another it's almost becoming pornographic in its visibility um, of very public figures dying, public outpourings of grief, people filming their dying moments and, and broadcasting those on television. And whether you just had any view on, on kind of cultural... Well, I, I, I think that that, um, 
think that that, that um, apparent uh, dichotomy isn't the right one. In other words, I think it's exactly the same cultures who, in reality, shy away from the reality of death, who also create a pornography of death. So I think that you know what's happening at the moment with with uh, Jade, uh, what happened with the film of, of the of the uh, the man with with uh, Alzheimer's dying, what happens with these cases of people, uh, in my view, to a certain extent, legitimately bringing. Uh, lawsuits in order to, to try and affect assisted suicide in the UK, all of, all of which could be said to be a sort of odd pornography of death. I think that's intimately connected. We are the society who can't cope with dying. And by, what I mean by that is we can't cope with it within an ordinary social context. We can't, it, we can't cope with it within the family. We can't cope with it. You know, you only have to go back hundred years, maybe 150 years to a point at which the vast majority of people would die at home, uh, the body would be laying out at home, the family would be there. You can read many, many accounts of you know, children seeing their, their relatives, seeing their parents or their grandparents dead in the house for two or three days. So actually ours is the society that has, has almost 100% medicalized the experience of death. I mean, it's an astonishing statistic that, that 90% of the money spent on medical care in the average Britain's life is in the last six weeks of that life. So, you know, I always think that all of the arguments about the NHS could really be arguments, you know, the, the Secretary of State for Health could really be called the Secretary of State for Death because that's what it's about. And there is an enormous, I, and I think quite submerged preoccupation with not looking at that and not looking at the reality of it. And the, the flip side of it, is the pornography of death. There is no... Now, whether or not you want to relate that to the fact that we're a highly secular society is up to you, but my hunch is that the two are intimately connected. There's a gentleman there. Uh, thank you, sir. My name is Paul Robinson, and I'm just uh, very interested to hear if you could say a few words on how you uh, evolve the fact into fiction and what drives you to write fiction, perhaps from fact, and um, when do you desist from turning fact into fiction? Thank you. Okay. Um, by fiction, I don't mean fiction fiction, because one learns from your fiction. Thank you. Sorry, by fiction you don't mean? I mean pure fiction in a non-belief sense, but something that one can learn from, one learns from your fiction, for example. Uh, okay. Um, well, I don't think, I mean, I'm not what's commonly thought of as a naturalistic writer. I mean, I think that, for me, I mean, with a story like Leberknobel, what's interesting is trying to set up, really, quite a high naturalistic feel to it and then taking it somewhere else. And, and arguably, though, it's perhaps broader and appears more farcical. That's what's going on in Trois-Humaine as well. Certainly, if you read the story to the end, you don't need to buy a copy. You can just stand up in the library. Or, um, <laughs> You know, that, that's what's going on there. I mean, I, I'm not really interested. I'm, I'm very... I mean, there's a sort of fetish in our culture around what I regard essentially as Romain Clay of one kind or another. You know, people do write an awful lot of novels that are simply their life or somebody else's life with name changes. And that doesn't really interest me, though it's considered a very high art form for some reason. I don't really know why. Uh, and nor am I interested in trying to create a perception 
of what I call commonplace reality. In other words, those things that we all agree on, like this lectern is here and we're sitting in the LSE. There's a, there's a fiction that seems to me concerned with confirmation of fact, reassurance around fact. Uh, I've never had that, that I, idea. My, my philosophy of what's involved in, in, in creating fictional worlds is quite different from, from that. So the way in which I assimilate commonplace fact into the kind of fiction I write, I think, is somewhat different to the way a naturalistic writer goes about it. And I think that there's two... I'm usually, in my fiction, trying to make people lend credence to ideas that commonplace fact tends to be dismissive of or to push to the sides in one way or another. Uh, and I think there's two main ways to employ fact to do that, and they're, and they're, they're what I call... Uh, the Kafka approach and the Kafka approach is to say you know one morning Gregor Sansa awoke to discover that during the night he had turned into an enormous cockroach that's line one it's sans phrase you know either you're going to buy it or you're not and I think one of the, the, the genius things about metamorphosis is that you do buy it you accept it and the other way is to uh, is it, sort of more the Swiftian way, which is to provide an enormous amount of circumstantial detail. You know, in something like Gulliver's Travels, there's many, many pages of rather intimate description of what it would be like to be uh, a surgeon on 18th century uh, sailing vessels before you actually get to Lilliput. And I've employed both in my time. I'm, uh, but that's my ostensible use of fact. I'm not interested in fact uh, in order... Uh, as a touchstone, as a shared experience in that way. I'm interested in it really in quite a manipulative way. Does that help at all? Anybody else? The gentleman, well, somebody right next to you with glasses, and then there's another gentleman in the middle here with glasses. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm Wojtek uh, from Chica. Um, I really enjoyed the, uh, the gastronomic metaphor um, in your story. Um, I was recently in, a, in an NHS canteen where I ordered a chicken curry that was served uh, chips and peas. And I was just thinking about how, if I was, say, in the fat duck of some sort of gastronomic temple, and I got the wrong dish, it was sort of ample opportunity to say, well, I'm sorry, this isn't what I wanted. Um, but I didn't do that in a canteen. We were just discussing last week the, the arguments for and against assisted suicide. And uh, Baroness Warnock, who's a crossbench peer, um, was talking about her strong conviction that the individual right is, is sort of absolute um, and that should be reflected in law. Whereas the doctors in the room were concerned about what happens when you roll something out and where the individual and grand journey someone going to Zurich becomes something more akin to the 99p hamburger, something that can be dealt wrongly, misserved, and the opportunities aren't quite the same for going back. Um, I was just wondering to what extent in writing this piece you reflected upon or had thoughts about whether there should be a corresponding change in legislation and what the Rollaries of such a law being passed might be. Okay, well, somebody has to ask that, I suppose, and it, it was you <laughs> uh, in, on this occasion. 
Um, I think it's an interesting one, uh, clearly, or I wouldn't have bothered to, to, to engage with the novella. Though I think, you know, uh, my feeling is, and perhaps it's a little uh, outre, is that far too many of us fear committing suicide ourselves. In other words, I think that the kind of social change we really need is for people to be more prepared to, to commit suicide at a, a point where they don't need any assistance. That's, and that paradoxically, if we were able to change like that collectively, to have that kind of stoicism, then the point at which we had that kind of stoicism, a change in the law would be unexceptionable. You see what I mean? It would be after the fact of a collective change in our attitude towards death. I think at the moment, the idea that legislation can somehow create that change of mind, I'm a little skeptical about, actually, <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. For to do some of the things to do with, with what this woman, the question this woman raised about our tendency to make pornographic, and something to do with our, the tendency, the extent to which medicine is a kind of form of secular religion for us at the moment. Uh, so I, I think it is very much up to us as individuals to confront death. Uh, and that's what the novella's about, in, in a big way, is, is about that individual confrontation. And I think that treating, you know, the fact of the matter is, of course, that in terms of practical politics, I'm afraid to say that some of the people that are pushing the legal, the law change on assisted suicide, including Mary Warnock, who I know personally, and I'm, you know, I think is a fantastic person, I think that they are actually making it harder for the doctors to do what they've always done. Doctors have always killed people. Uh, and they're actually making it, bringing the doctors, the fact that doctors have always killed people under closer scrutiny and paradoxically making it harder. And the odd thing is I think the doctors who have always killed people are probably, many of them, apart from the Harold Shipmans of this world, <laughs> at the better end of the medical profession in terms of their grasp on these ethical issues. So I think, you know, we're, we're in danger of being hoisted by our own petard with a, with a legal change. In other words, legal change tends to play to the medicalization of death rather than to move us away from it into a closer and more socially integrated and more realistic relationship with our own extinction. So that's my view. Oh, yes, the gentleman here in the middle. Thank you. Um, you've written fiction um, about people who have emerged after their deaths in various parts of North London. I was wondering what, what are your views on what happens after death, any sort of afterlife? Well, I, I, my hunch is that, if you, is that personal immortality seems kind of frankly preposterous. But of course, you know, I, you know, I, don't come, I come out of a very secular place, so it's no, no surprise. You know, I, I really allow myself the luxury of doubt on, on that one. I mean, quite clearly nobody knows. <laughs> I mean, and if I were to stand here and say, actually, I do know, I think, uh, I think you could be forgiven for saying that I was rather uh, overreaching my remiss as a writer of fiction. But quite, quite clearly, given the extent to which I do deal with it fictionally, I, I regard it as, you know, one of the most, most 
not so much the fact or non-fact of it is one of the most important things as the fact that we are drawn to think about it ineluctably as being one of the most important things that, that adumbrates existence and life. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I've thought about it a great deal. You know, and I, I veer between... Uh, I mean, I wrote the novel, How the Dead Live, because um, I was fascinating with the idea of what it would be like for a Western secular materialist if she were to die and discover that Tibetan Buddhists had it right. You know, that she were to die and to enter the bardo. I thought that was a fascinating idea. And I certainly think in terms of theories of, of the afterlife that Tibetan and, and Mahayana Buddhism generally has, has in many ways the most psychologically credible picture of what some form of afterlife might be like. I find the kind of uh, monotheistic views of what happens after death to be a bit CGI and a bit kind of... And also, one thinks, I was reading it again the other day, it's already come up, uh, one thinks of Swift's Strollbulgs in, uh, in Lakuta and, and the idea of personal immortality, if you really think about it, is absolutely terrifying. And if, and if you aren't familiar with the Strollbulgs, I urge you to go and get a copy of Gulliver's Travels because I think Swift nailed the idea of what pers how dreadful personal immortality would be very, very early on. So now clearly it, it fascinates me, but, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> Anybody else? Somebody over here. There's a, a woman halfway back here because I feel this, this left wing uh, has been neglected as it has for 30 years. <laughs> um, hi, my name's Sue and I um, work in the NHS and I'm a psychologist setting up a new service for people who are dying and will die. And really interestingly, we're unable to find a name for ourselves. And my first question is, you know, have you got any interesting re reasons why that would be? And secondly, do you have any good ideas of what we <laughs> could call ourselves? So the, the, this, hang on to the microphone for a second. This is a, a service intended to, uh, it's a sort of the psychological side psychological. of palliative care. It's all come from a new government strategy, um, the end-of-life care strategy. Right, end-of-life um, care strategy. I know. <laughs> and we're excited. <laughs> And it's, I work in Tower Hamlets. straight from the Department of Euphemism. It, yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, and it's in Tower Hamlets, I work. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's interesting, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure you're right. I mean, the end of life care strategies uh, says it all, doesn't it, about why, <laughs> why you're having difficulties coming up with a name. Um, I mean, I think it just sort of is emblematic of, of what we've been talking about today and uh, I mean I, I, you know um, I, I mean what, what could you, you call such a thing? Die happy die happy incorporated or die better or better dead <laughs> crispy cream dead uh, good luck with it I mean it's clearly valuable work and, but, but whether again something like this kind of wholesale change in our perception of death which seems to me a big philosophic change, can be affected by government initiative, I, I somewhat doubt. But obviously you're a person of conviction and drive, so hopefully at an individual level you'll, you'll be able to help you. Well, we just have five minutes left, so perhaps if you wanted to take two questions and then... Okay, there's a, there's a, a lady here in, in, in the pink. And there's the gentleman just up here who's been... 
his hand has been up. To okay. <laughs> All right. And then to, to the, that gentleman, yeah. Just a very perfect. Uh, why did you call this story Labour Knödel? I didn't get. Okay. Well, uh, sorry. Okay, well, then you, will, you can find out if you... There's a soup... Okay, I read it. ...called uh, Leverknödel soup uh, that, that figures in the story. Okay. And a more serious question is, in your research, did you come across people who uh, would talk about having changed their mind in that room? Oh, I didn't uh, interview anybody personally who'd, who'd been to Dignitas. Did oh, somebody who changed their mind. Uh, no, funny enough, I hadn't heard of, of, of that kind of a case. But, uh, I mean, quite clearly, that would be the most interesting thing, to throw all of these questions into sharp relief would be to enter the mind of somebody who, well, I don't want to give the story away. <laughs> There's a gentleman a just here who has, who, down, down, all the way down, he's got down. Um, spectacles. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's such a small question that it's not worthy of the last question. <laughs> Shall I ask it anyway? <laughs> no. <laughs> you, uh, you talk about the word novella quite mm. often uh, sort of lands between novella and short story for this piece you just wrote and when you talk about having written a novella are you talking about it in terms of being anything to do with the tradition, de Maupassant the people who wrote novellas or just because of the length of the short story I think it is length. I mean, I think fiction is very... Um, I think narrative fiction, prose fiction, is, is very... It's a book of words. It's very... Uh, it follows fairly precise rules on that front. I mean, there are feuilletons and jeux d'esprits of various kinds that don't fit into an established word length. But if you write a piece of prose fiction that I would argue that is, you know, over 30,000 words and designed and, and under... 80,000, 70 or 80,000, and is divided into a chapter structure, it's a novella. Do you feel differently about it? No, because it's 28,000. Is it divided into chapters? Does it have a subplot? <laughs> Doesn't it have to have a subplot, but I'm just saying, that, that for me, you know, a short story tends to be a homogenous narrative. I mean, it, it's just, it's something to do with the kind of stereoscopic effect you get when you have another narrative strand, division of chapters, it makes it something different. But I, I agree with you, I've written novellas in the upper 20s and low 30s. But of course, it, my feeling is if they had been a single, discrete, without sections, uh, and they had had only one straightforward narrative, they could easily qualify as short stories. So that's, it, it's, it's marginal in that kind of region. Okay? Alright. Well, I can't remember how long Death and Venice is. 48,000. Is it in chapters? No. <laughs> short story. It's a short story, really. I mean, not a lot goes on. He just looks at the boy. And, uh, uh, thank you very much. I think I'm here for uh, uh, a while. I'll sign books, chat with you, yes. go home with you, whatever. Well, if you do, all good.